Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. We're in Luke chapter 9 today. Um, I don't really have an introduction. I want to kind of just get into it because today is an, uh, it's an it's a interesting chapter. Uh, but it is a long chapter. It goes all the way to chapter 62. So we're going to split it in half. We're not going to cover the whole chapter today. <clears throat> Excuse me. My plan is only to get to about verse 27. So with that in mind, uh, let's get into the word. We're going to go to Luke chapter 9, start in verse 1, and we'll go through 6. Uh, if this is your first time do expository study, so I'll read a little bit and we'll talk a little bit, but that's kind of the whole point. We're just going to read the scripture and we're going we're gonna to let it guide us. Amen? Okay, Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 1. <clears throat> it says, he called the twelve together and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, and do not even have two tunics. But whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Just a quick pause. That's kind of like a a Jewish uh, idiom. The idea being that when you walk into Gentile territory, you don't want foreign soil on your boots when you enter into Jerusalem to worship in the temple. That's the idea. So when you travel on your way home, when you're entering into God's land, God's territory, shake off the dust of the enemy's territory and don't bring that into God's presence. That's what that idiom means. Verse six, they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now for five chapters, Jesus has been preaching and healing. We've had numerous chapters where he will sit there and communicate and and teach to the people, and then we'll have a whole chapter of that teaching coming to life. And then we'll have a chapter that's actually split in half. There'll be a teaching and then that teaching will come to life and Jesus will demonstrate how that teaching actually applies to real life. But here is the first time that Jesus shares his authority with his 12 disciples. Now, I wanna talk about this principle for a minute. It's not the main direction where we're going, but it's a very important principle in God's kingdom. It'll dovetail into what we're talking about, but it's kind of a sidebar before we get into the real conversation of the chapter. And the idea is that sharing authority is a cornerstone of God's kingdom. In this kingdom, the worldly kingdom, the kingdom of of, of, of earth, it is normal for lords and kings to consolidate their power, to not give it away, to not share authority. The way of this world is to stockpile authority and hoard it for yourself. That way people have to come to you and you're the one with all the answers and you're the one who can call all the shots. That's the ways of this world. But when Jesus shows up, he gives a different paradigm. And what he says is that authority is meant to be shared. It's meant to be given away. And this is kind of, now, as we're thinking about this, like, okay, that kind of makes sense. But again, this was revolutionary in the first century. This wasn't something that everyone walked around with understanding. There there was no John Maxwell seminars. There's no leadership classes that you could take that people would kind of work through biblical principles in a worldly setting. There was none of that. All the people had was this idea that, well, I'm going to do what the people in power are going to do. And that was the core issue that the prophets communicated, the, the, the issue that God had with Israel that he communicated through the prophets. All through the prophets, you hear over and over and over again, my leaders, they're the ones who are the problem. Because what they're doing is they're setting an example for the people who are below them. The prophets are communicating that the priests, they're corrupt. 
The leadership, the kings, they're corrupt. And what they're doing is they're setting a tone for everyone underneath them that it's okay to be corrupt. And so in this learning cycle, what the people had picked up all the way through the first century is that what you do when you get power is you hold on to it. You lord it over your kids, you lord it over your wife, you lord it over people at work, you remind everybody how long you've been here and how bad they need you. But when Jesus shows up, he presents a completely different way of thinking. He teaches the disciples that you're supposed to give authority away. Now in 1 John 2.6, it says that if we abide in him, we ought to walk in the same way he walked. John is telling us that if you want to follow Jesus, what that means is you better follow Jesus. If he sets an example for this is the way you're supposed to do things, then as a follower of Christ, then you are supposed to follow that example. You don't get to look at scripture and see, oh, that's how Jesus did things, but I'm gonna do things differently. You're supposed to follow his example. So in his example, he's giving authority away, and that is our model to follow. Now again, you're sitting here maybe thinking, well, I I know that, that that makes sense. Like, I kinda get that, I, I do that. But the question I'd like to ask you is, do you? Because giving away responsibility is not the same as giving away authority. What we often do is we give someone responsibility, but we don't give them authority. And the reason why is because we like keeping the authority so they have to come back to us to actually get anything accomplished. We like to make sure that things are done our way, and so we don't empower people with the authority to actually go out and do the things that we, we want done because we want them done our way. And we need people to keep constantly coming back to us because we need to be needed. But that isn't what Jesus is presenting here. He's not presenting us with an example of just sharing responsibility. Go out and preach the gospel. He gives them that responsibility and then also gives them the authority to go out and accomplish this. This is the pattern that Jesus is setting. Now the goal that we're supposed to achieve or aspire to is to model what Christ is modeling, to give away authority, but there's a catch. It's unbelievably messy. (laughs) When you decide to follow Christ and follow his examples and start giving authority away, the people who you give the authority to, to start accomplishing the things that you want, will not do it your way. They often won't even do it in your timing. The finished product may not look the way you want it to. But when we're talking about following Christ, this is one of those mandates from scripture that all of us are supposed to be following in whatever sphere of influence God has given you. I don't care if you're just talking about a job or talking about at home or talking about the church. The church responsibilities can't rest on one person or a few people that like hoarding power and give responsibility to others but don't give them authority and they have to keep coming back to the people who are in charge. You know, the board. The people who like to hoard power and make sure everybody remembers who they are and where they sit on Sundays. You you know what I'm talking about? I'm talking about the kind of attitude that you have in your home where um, you just are convinced that, man, if you're the head of your home, that means you have to do everything in your home. And your wife is the nerd in the family and you are not, but you will not let her run the checkbook because you think it's your responsibility. You have got to wrap your head around this idea of giving away authority so that more things can be accomplished. If everything is sitting on your shoulder, you're gonna wear yourself out and you're gonna walk in the opposite example that Christ has set for us. This is the same principle that Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, was trying trying to explain to Moses. 
Moses, you mean to tell me that you're spending your entire day sitting around listening to a million and a half people gripe and complain and argue about who stole somebody's carrots and where this stew came from and this person took this... You're going to lose your mind, Moses. And Moses is like, I already have, actually. He says, what you need to do is you need to split up your leaders, groups of thousands, hundreds, fifties, twenty-five. You need to split them up and you need to give them authority to make the decisions without having to come to you. Now on the surface, this seems like kind of like a no-brainer, but this is crucial. This is cornerstone to following Christ. He did it with his disciples, and if we don't follow this example, we're going to end up running churches and homes and businesses like the world and not God's kingdom. Now, what's on the line here? Why do we constantly go back and do this? Because of what I said earlier, we we like being liked. We like being needed. We don't want to give responsibility and authority away to somebody else, because if we do, then they won't need us as bad. That's a core issue to you because in this process, in the giving away of authority, what he reminds you is that you, your identity isn't in that. Who you are isn't, I, it, your, your, your core, who you are, it, it, it's not summed up by how much power you have. In fact, if you're following me, the sum of who you are is how much authority and power you gave away. How much you trusted others. Here's the last thing you have to consider. At the end of the day, we are not building your kingdom. And that's what's at the heart of this principle. Jesus models for his people, I want you to take the authority and the responsibility I've given you, and I want you to disseminate it. I want you to give it away. I want you to to spread it across your family, your church, where you work. I want you to stop acting like everything has to be your way because we're not building your kingdom. I know some of you are already starting to think like, I don't know if that's going to work. You don't know where I work. If I don't keep having things go this way, things are going to fall apart. Will they? Or will they grow into something maybe even better? Now what I'm not saying is, is giving away the responsibility of things like stewarding the culture to somebody else. There are certain things that leaders are responsible for. One of the chief among those is saying no. If you're a dad and you don't say no to your kids, you're not a very good dad. If you're a mom and you just can't bring yourself to tell your kids no, you gotta fix that. I love you, but if you don't raise your children up into a world that understands that there is a difference between right and wrong, and wrong things are no, then they're going to get confused and grow up thinking good is evil and evil is good. That's the world we live in now. Now, I know that there's, there's an entire corner of, of the parenting world that says, no, man, you, 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 gotta, you gotta reinforce your kids and be real positive and, and you know, encourage them. Oh, that, that works if you've got a mild-mannered kid. But if you're raising a thug, that doesn't work. <laughs> You gotta <laughs> preach. <laughs> and if you've got more than two kids, three kids, four, you're just gonna realize every single one of them needs something a little bit different. So look, what I'm not doing is trying to paint with the broadest brush and say, this is what you're supposed to do in every situation. But what I am saying is that there is a responsibility at, at the parent level to teach your kids the difference between right and wrong, yes and no. You have to love them and you have to discipline them, but you also have to, as they grow, give them responsibility and authority. Empty the dishwasher. And I'm not gonna tell you how to do it. I want it done. Just get it done. See, what that teaches inside of them is a sense of ownership. You mean I just have to do it and I can do it any way I want? Yeah, sure. And you come back in the kitchen and all the dishes are sitting on the table, not in the cabinet. (laughs) All right, well, now we're going to have a conversation about 
levels of expectations. That's not, that's, that's not gonna help. But as they grow, you have to understand. See, see here's the thing. Um, it, at some point, it's not gonna work to just tell your kids, um, you have to not look at that stuff on your phone. Stay off of that. I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, we have a rule in my house, you don't get social media until you're 18. <gasps> yeah. You don't get social media until you're 18. You don't date until after you're 18. And the reason why we have that rule is because I remember what it was like before social media and phones ran your life. I remember a time when there wasn't that stuff. And now that we have it, I'm old enough to remember a time when I didn't have it, and when that stuff starts controlling my life, I have a reference point for what it looks like before that stuff and start invading territory in my mind and my heart. But kids these days, they don't have that unless you give that to them. They grow up holding an iPad. They think that, man, this is, the, the, there is no reference point for a world that's not completely surrounded by technology. And why I'm saying this is because what, what, what Sarah, Sarah, my wife and I wanted to do was create a culture in our home where at, when they hit 18 as an adult, they could remember what it was like in their childhood not having this stuff. So when they did make the decision, they had the responsibility and the authority to remember what it was like before that happened and they could make a conscious adult decision saying, I don't like what this thing is doing to me. And so I'm gonna back off of a little bit because I remember what it was like before. But if they don't have that, they have no reference point for what it's like to not have that. But what I'm saying is when they hit a point at which I can't tell them you can't have that anymore, don't do that. That's not helpful, that's not fruitful. What is fruitful is helping them mature into a place where they can start making the decisions for themselves. Slowly but surely, I give them a little more responsibility, a little more authority in, in areas that have very low um, failure. Like if, if you fail at this, man, the stakes are so low, it's not a big deal. You're not ruining your life. But if you make this mistake when you're 40, that's like ruined life territory. But the, here, it's not a big deal. And so what you have to do with, with kids, with, with every sphere of influence, what Christ is teaching us here is he didn't just show up and give all the disciples the authority. He had them watch him. I want you to watch me cast this demon out. I want you to watch me teach these messages. I want you to watch me because I want this kingdom in your heart. Because if you don't have this kingdom in your heart, when I give you the authority to go out there, you're gonna start preaching and building your own kingdom. But what is necessary is that you get to a place where you have matured into understanding how to manage that responsibility and that authority. Does it make sense? So that, that's the encouragement. That's, that's the very beginning of, of what Luke is saying. What's about to happen here is that this kingdom thing that's going on with Jesus, it's now expanding to everybody else. And what's happening is just as a child grows, these disciples are starting to grow, and Jesus is saying, like, I'm, I'm, I'm not gonna be with you and say, hey, do this, don't do that, say this, don't say that. I want you to be able to self-regulate. I want you to be able to have the authority, now that I trust you with this message, to go and do the things that I would do even though I'm not there. So as a kid, if you're standing there like, what, what has been taught inside of you is not a, a list of rules, do this, don't do this. What has been taught to you is a, a level of maturity where you can say, I have the authority to say, I, I don't want this. I don't need somebody to tell me, don't look at this. I know I don't need to look at this. Does that make sense? That's what this is all about. Now, it's messy, as I said. There's gonna be, you know, tripping over your own shoes, it's not, when you, when you start trying to implement this kind of structure in your church, in your home, in, in, at work, it's gonna be messy because people aren't gonna do things the way you wanted them to, and they're gonna show up and they're gonna do the opposite, but you cannot avoid this principle. This is what we're supposed to be doing, and you can't say it's gonna be too hard or too messy, and that's why I'm not gonna do it. We have to be people who are responsible and mature enough to say, this thing is on my plate, but I'm gonna get over, give it over to you and I want you to accomplish it in the way that I would even though I'm not gonna be there and then sit back and watch and see what God does. Amen? 
Okay, now what happens here halfway through the first couple verses of nine, after Jesus delegates the authority, is he gives some really strange instructions here. He says, take nothing with you. No staff, no bread, no bag, no money. Don't even take some some backup clothing. I want you to go in faith. Why did he do that? Why did he give the disciples that specific instruction? He did that because he wants them to learn a lesson while they're out there accomplishing his purposes. And that lesson is simple. I will always provide. That's it. When you go onto the highways and the byways, I will provide. When you're at home with your family, I will provide. When you're at work and things are falling apart, I will provide. You don't need to bring backup. You don't need to bring things that that are identified as comfort or uh, more than enough just in case the thing that you did bring breaks down or falls apart. What you have in me is enough. That's the principle. He will provide. Now what is he gonna provide? Everything. What does he provide? Everything. There is nothing that the Lord is short on. He provides everything. Now this theme is gonna keep showing up over and over in this chapter. So I just want to keep that in your mind. The Lord will provide. Let's go to the next section, pick up in verse seven. Now Herod the Tetrarch, this is the the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the one who uh, ordered all the babies to be killed when Jesus was born. Uh, This Herod is the one who is his son, has taken over kind of the region in the north up around the Galilee. Um, Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead and he had beheaded John, Herod had. So I killed this guy, I don't, I'm hearing all this news and it sounds like he's back from the dead. But some told him that Elijah had appeared and others that one of the prophets of old had risen. And Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. Now Luke arranges this section, one through six, and then seven through nine, with a purpose of reinforcing very specific themes. Now I already told you what the first theme was. The first theme is that the Lord provides. And the reason why I'm doing this is because I want you to kind of open your eyes to the way that the writers of scripture, inspired by the Holy Spirit, arranged the messaging. There is a lot to be learned in the words, but there is also a lot to be learned in the way that the words and the stories are arranged. And Luke is a perfect example of that. He gives us these stories that seem like they're not connected, they don't really make any sense, but when you take a closer look, you understand that these themes are baked into these stories and they reproduce over and over and over again. Now the first theme in the first six verses is that the Lord provides. And then the second theme, seven through nine, is that there is a response. The Lord provides and then Herod hears that the Lord is providing through the works of Jesus. He's healing, he's providing miracles for his disciples. And, and there is a response that is required. The Lord provides and someone has to respond. And the way that Herod responds is he says, I want to see him. The disciples are told to trust Jesus. He will provide. And then Herod hears the message and gives a response. Who is this? I've got to see him. Now Luke is threading these two themes together because as we start expanding and understand the application of this, we can't shake this feeling that these two themes always go together. The Lord provides. Do you believe it? What's your, what's your response? The Bible has proclaimed that the Lord is all you need. How do you respond to that? Do you, do you believe it? Do you doubt it? Ah, see, that, that's a response. When God proclaims who he is, I am a healer, do you believe it? 
Do you trust it? I said, what does the Lord provide? He provides everything. The fact that the Lord provides should cultivate our response. He's our daily bread. Are you hungry? Now this theme is not just independent of nine, one through six, and then seven through nine. He does it again. Let's go to verse 10. He says, on their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. I showed you a map a couple weeks ago. That's at the, uh, the northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came, and he said to them, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said, well, we have no more than five loaves and two fishes, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And that's just counting the men, not counting the women and the children. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and had all of them sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd, and all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. And the feeding of the 5,000. You've probably heard that story before, it's not unfamiliar. Jesus feeds a multitude with five, fish, five loaves, two fish, and the miracle is extraordinary. But I want you to take a deeper look at this message. What is Luke trying to say? And why is he including it right after Herod responding and right before Christ, right before Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ? What's going on here? What's going on here is that Luke wants you to see the message again. Because one of the best ways that we learn is repetition. He wants you to know that the Lord provides. And so what does he do? He gives you a story that the Lord provides. Jesus delegates authority to all of his disciples and they go out and they take what Christ has provided and they make sure that everybody's eating. It mirrors the story of the 12 being sent out. The message is the same. All you need is me. Don't take extra. Don't worry about not having enough when you're out there. When, when you go out and you minister, Trust that the Lord will provide. He'll provide a home for you to stay in. He'll provide you food. He'll provide you everything that you need. And I'm gonna show you this message again when 5,000 people are sitting around and they're all in need. Guess what? I'll provide. I will always provide. Now why is this lesson so important that Luke highlights it twice? Why do we need to get this into our, our mind why does it have to pierce our heart so deeply? Because this is the message of the entire Bible. This is the message from Genesis to Revelation. It's repeated over and over and over again. And the message is simple. The Lord will provide. If you're talking about Israel going into battle, how are we going to win? Guys, the Lord will provide. You don't have to worry. The Lord will provide. How's he going to do it? Doesn't matter how he's going to do it. But when he does it, it's going to blow your mind. Standing at the walls of Jericho, how are we going to conquer? This is like the first big city. Now that we're in the promised land, how are we going to conquer this? The Lord will provide. How's he going to do it? The how never matters. The how gets your mind off of the who. If you spend all of your time saying, how is God gonna do this? Then you're taking your eyes off of the one who will do it and robbing yourself of watching a miracle transpire right in front of you. The Lord 
will provide. That's the message, the message of the entire Bible. He is your creator, he is your provider, he is all you need. He's the one who travels before you, he's the one who is behind you, he is the one who is always with you, he's in the pillar of cloud uh, by day, he's in the pillar of fire by night, he's always with you. He's meeting with Moses in the tabernacle, He's meeting with David. He's walking with, the, with, with all of his people. He's showing up in the, in, in, in the presence uh, of, of, of Joshua. Joshua's like, who, who are, you? are you? Are you for us or against us? And he's, I'm, not, I'm not either. You're on my team, man. Everywhere you look, he, he keeps showing up because he provides for his people. He is the one who provides for all of your needs before you even need, before you even know that you need it. All right, so are you starting to see the pattern here? The Lord provides, and then we're given a response. And the Lord provides. Let me show you what Luke gives us next. Go to verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, well, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Now that question, who do you say I am, what is that a question of? It's a question of response. You see me doing all these things. What's your response? Who do you say that I am? You think I'm John the Baptist back from the dead? You think I'm one of the prophets of old? Who do people say that? Who do you say that I am? Provision and then response. The Lord provides for the 12, Herod responds. The Lord provides for the 5,000. Jesus asks his disciples to respond. What is Luke trying to show us? It's pretty simple. Provision always demands a response. The Lord has provided you with something. What is your response? Here's a perfect example. The Lord has provided you with life. What are you gonna do with that life? Everyone's in here this morning, which means that you were given breath in your lungs, your heart kept pumping, you opened your eyes, the eyes that he gave you, you rolled out of bed, stood up on your feet, and you had a choice. The Lord has given you another day. What are you gonna do with that day? The provision always demands a response. The Lord has given you life, he's given you family, he's given you a church, he's given you giftings, he's given you spheres of influence, areas where you have authority and responsibility. What are you gonna do with it? The Lord has provided so much for you. What is the response? A lot of times our response is, he hasn't provided that much for me. I don't have that, I don't have that. Well sure I have that, but I got that because of hard work. Really? Who gave you the strength to work so hard? Who gave you those lungs, those muscles, that skeletal system on the inside of your nervous system? Who who gave you that brain? Oh, you worked so hard. Who gave you the ability to work so hard? Who provided that job for you? See, we're so surface level in understanding what provision looks for that we never really look at the one who is providing everything. And the reason why we don't like that is because we know deep down, if we're honest with ourselves, that provision demands a response. And you don't want to respond to the one who's given you everything. Because you know deep down what the response looks like. Which is the last section of where we're gonna go. This response from Peter. says, Peter, what's your response to all that you've seen, to all the ways that I have provided for, for the authority for you when you went out and started casting out demons, for, for all of the, the fish and the loaves. We're fresh off of that, man. What's your response? And Peter says, man, you, my response is you're the Christ. You are indeed the provider. Well, praise God. Praise God that Peter got it right. And I pray that everybody in here will get it right. 
That when you start beholding your own life, you realize there's not a thing that you have that the Lord has not provided for you. There's nothing in your life that you have because you worked hard. Everything you have, you have because the Lord has provided for you, because he loves you. But that means it demands a response. If everything you have came from somewhere else, what are you gonna do with it? Is it yours? Are you gonna hold on to it, lord it? Make sure people come to you for it because you got all this stuff and all this power and all this authority, or are you gonna do what he did and give it away? See, the provision requires a response, and Peter's response is, man, you're the Christ. I wanna give it all back to you. Well, praise God that Peter got it right, and I pray that all of us get it right. I pray that we all respond that, man, you're the provider, and I'm gonna give everything back to you, but what does that look like? What does that mean? I don't wanna be so abstract that we don't really get down into the nitty gritty of what this, what this actually looks like, all right? If we're, if we're saying the Lord has provided you life, and then you give that life back to him in worship, then what then does that life look like? Because we know what our lives look like when we don't give it back to him, right? It looks like a selfish life. It looks like a life where we're building our own kingdom and we're pouring our own concrete and we're building our own stuff and we don't really care about what he's doing because we're doing, we know what that life looks like. What does a life that responds to the provider with, man, you gave me all this, I'm gonna use this to build your kingdom. Where do you want this concrete? Where do you want these two befores? What are we building next? What are you doing in me next? I know you're not done, so keep going, keep digging deeper. This has been a rough year because you've turned a lot of soil over inside of my heart, but I know you're not done because you're the one who gave the soil. I want more of that seed in my heart. I want the word of God to illuminate in my life all the things that you're doing. That's what a life given over looks like, but what does it really look like? If we're talking brass tacks, what does a life that acknowledges the provider and gives that life back to Christ, what does that look like? Jesus leans in. And he gives a very clear answer. Go to verse 21. He strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, now buckle up, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and all the holy angels. And I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Just a short little sidebar unrelated to what we're talking about. That last verse has confused a lot of people. What is he talking about? Is some people gonna, some people here, they're not gonna die until he comes back again? No, the very next verse is the transfiguration. He's talking about some of the disciples, three specifically, who are about to watch what it's gonna look like for Jesus to come in glory because he's gonna be transfigured right before their eyes. Now, backing up. Jesus speaks of his death and resurrection and the road for all of the disciples. Meaning that following Jesus means forsaking this world for a better one. What does it look like when the provider gives you life and you say, I'm gonna give that life back to you? What does that life look like? That life looks most like death. That's what it looks like. When you say that everything you've given me, it's yours, I give it back to you. 
It means following Jesus as being unashamed of Him so that He won't be unashamed of you. It means putting your flesh to death and being raised to new life. It means rejecting all of your own desires and only cultivating the desires that the Heavenly Father wants for you. That's what it looks like. So here's what I wanna do. I wanna tug on this thread just for a moment from Luke 9, 1 through 27. I wanna go through this pattern so we fully understand what Luke wants us to see and what Jesus is trying to teach the disciples. It's pretty simple. The Lord provides, hard stop, end of story. The Lord always provides, but his provision in your life demands a response. What are you gonna do with the reality and the proclamation that the Lord has provided everything for you? Are you gonna give it back to him? Are you gonna acknowledge him? Are you gonna serve him as the Lord? Or are you gonna keep on taking the things that he provided for you and using them to build your own kingdom and put a little Burger King crown on your head and act like you're the king of town and you're the one who's in charge and you're calling all the shots in your own life, but you're calling all the shots with all of the things he gave you. Now that's foolishness. Just looking at it is foolishness, but it's not like we're allergic to foolishness, we, we like it. But there's a third step to this process, these themes that Luke wants us to understand. The provider always provides and it demands a response and if your response is the right response, like Peter, you're the Christ, you are Lord of all, you are the provider and I have received everything from you, therefore you are the Lord of my life. You're king, not me, that's a good response. But then the last step is, well, okay, well what does that life look like? What does it look like to live a life acknowledging that Jesus has authority over everything in your life. It looks like death. Now at this point you're saying like, man, okay. I was with you up until that last point. Because I'm totally down for what the Bible says, man, he is the provider. Yeah, I'm with you. Yes, he is the provider. I'm with you. And when you say he is the Lord of all, I am with you. Yes, he is the Lord of all. He surely is. He's the Lord of all, most, thing, most all things in my life. <laughs> there are just a couple things I don't want him touching. See, that response shows your hand. Because if your response is that there are areas of your life or you don't want him being Lord, then the second part, that acknowledge that the acknowledgement that he is Lord, you have lied. He isn't Lord. And that is what Jesus is trying to drive down to Peter. And we're gonna see it unfold moving forward because Peter is sitting here saying, Christ, you are Lord, but Peter is thinking Christ is Lord in a very specific way. He's about to get offended at the way that Christ is Lord. Because all these disciples think that they're following the Messiah that has been prophesied by the prophets that say he's gonna rise up and he's gonna conquer the nations. And they're thinking, well yeah, I wanna be with that guy. They're not thinking this guy is going to walk with a, a, a crossbeam on his shoulder up to Golgotha and be crucified and then buried for three days. They don't think that they're following a guy who is going to be murdered. They think they're following the coming king. And so when Peter boldly proclaims Christ is Lord, he's thinking Christ is Lord and I know what that means and I know what it means for me. Man, you're the provider, you're the king, I give my life back to you and then Jesus corrects him. And you were right, right up to the last two, but what you're asking or what you're expecting, Peter, is that I will be the kind of king you want me to be. And that's a problem. And that's the same problem most of us face. The idea that we are cool serving Jesus as long as Jesus looks like us. As long as Jesus votes the way we vote, as long as Jesus likes the music we like, as long as he's okay with the shows that we like watching, we can digest a Jesus that looks like us. But that's a problem. It's the same problem humanity has been fighting the entire uh, age of humanity. 
that we are constantly trying to refashion God in our own image rather than being fashioned in his image, allowing our heart to be changed, to be more like him. We want him to be more like us. And so we're attracted to images of him that satisfy and encourage those things about us that he wants to change. I'm gonna kind of show my hand here. Um, One of the reasons why the last few weeks I've been trying through prayer and through encouragement for the word is to cultivate inside of you a desire for Christ and nothing else. I want you to want Jesus more than anything because this is an election year. See, I've got selfish reasons. I've been around doing this long enough to know that one of the things that stops the move of God is politics. And if you're not careful, man, you can go hard after Jesus and then the closer you get to November, you start watching more news than you're watching now and then all of a sudden it's got you. You've been seized. And it's all you think about. And it's all you watch. And it's all you talk about. And pretty soon, a part of this world that it seems harmless. We, sh- we, we should be involved in some level of, of the things of this world. It goes beyond that, doesn't it? It's not about just voting. It's past that. It captures your imagination and your full attention and it's all you think about and it's all you talk about and then pretty soon where you were here in February, it's, it's gone. That hunger, that desire, it's, it's gone because you're, you're too busy thinking about other things. And so what I want is, man, I want to start cultivating inside of you such a hunger so that when we inevitably hit that season where this world is banging its fist saying, pay attention to this. Look at this atrocity. Can't you believe this? You won't turn over and start, oh, you guys, you believe, you believe it? No. Guys, I think we all saw it coming. We all know what's coming. What's coming is a a full-on slot for your attention and your affections, and if you're not careful, you'll give yourself over to it. And so I'm doing this selfishly because I want you to have more of Jesus because I know what's coming, and you know what's coming. If you don't get on a steady diet of Christ and want him more than this world, when this world bakes a meal that looks really scrumptious, you will sit down and take a bite every single time. And so what I want is I want your appetite to be so tuned to the Lord that when you're offered something that isn't him, it's not tasty, I don't want it. Now I'm not saying we walk around with our heads stuck in the dirt, but I am saying that there is something that is far more appealing than arguing and being consumed with things that you have no power for. David says it this way. He says, Lord, I don't want to be consumed with things that are too high and lofty for me. What I want most in this world is to be consumed with you because when I am, then I'm locked in on the guy who can really make some change. And then all I have to do is pray and I see things around me change. But you know how much changes when you complain? Very little. Usually the only thing that changes is you. It changes you into a darker person. So how is this all connected? It's connected because Luke wants you to see a big God who provides for all of your needs and the expectation that you need to respond to that. But the response needs to be the right response. You can't fall into the same trap that uh, Peter fell into when he proclaimed, yes, I'm with you, but the I'm with you is I'm actually with a different Jesus, not the one that you are. And that's why Jesus said, all right, guys, I'm glad you're with me, but let's make it abundantly clear what you're here for and what you say yes to. When you respond and say, I want the provider, let me help you understand what you're responding to. You're responding to a man who went down into death, and that is the path that I want you to follow. So in following Christ, this is not some hoorah, we're all on team Jesus and everything's gonna be great and our lives are gonna be better now and if you're a non-believer, all you do is get saved and everything's gonna be so much better. It's not. Chances are it might even get worse. 
But there's a promise in that, that in your worse, all of a sudden things have purpose that they didn't before. See, in your misery, there's no purpose to it when you're a non-believer. But when there's suffering and trials and tribulations, you're promised that there is purpose in that and it's actually used to shape and mold you to be more like him. So this is what Luke wants us to see. This idea that this principle, the provider demanding a response, it is going to cost you something. Following Jesus is going to cost you something. And if it, if it hasn't ever in your life, I hate to be the one to bring you bad news, but you're not following Jesus. You're following a version of him that you've remade in your own image. If Christ has never come to you and said, this is a thing that needs to, to change, then, buddy, you're not following Christ. Count the cost. Nobody starts building a tower until they, built a, until they count the cost because if they haven't counted the cost and they start halfway through, everyone's gonna laugh at them and they're gonna be a mockery. The Lord is the provider. He provides everything and all we have to do is respond but in our response, we've gotta understand what that response means. It, remain, it, it means that you are going to have to give everything. There is not a corner of your life that will not be touched by his love, by his mercy, but also by his reprimand. This is the beauty of what it means to follow Christ, that he is not a God who just gives you everything that you want. He is a God who provides all of your needs and changes who you are at the very core. This last, the, I want to read this one last time, just so we have an understanding of what this is. I want you to, just as we close, I want you to close your eyes. I want you to hear Jesus' words of what it means to respond to him and to say, yeah, you're the provider, you're the Christ, you're the Lord, I want you. This is what that I want you means. If anyone would follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.